So no matter how much you pour something into a hole that's bottomless, it just cannot be filled up. The action of actually trying to fill the hole, it just makes the hole bigger. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira for episode eight. And this week, we're going to be changing directions just a little bit from last episode, where we took on a topic that is front and center in the political discourse of the here and now, um, and tried to take a step back and have a nice discussion and debate about different ways of thinking about kind of these problems um, surrounding free speech and um, what it means to be awoke or woke or what have you. Um, and I, I thought it was just an excellent conversation I had uh, with Chris Starp. And this week, we're going to be, in some ways, taking a, a few steps back in terms of trying to look at a lot of these things from a much wider perspective and in some ways get to some of the elemental questions that uh, for me, and I think for a lot of us who are interested in politics and discuss politics, ultimately have in mind and, and in some ways getting bogged down in, in very ongoing debates of the here and now, I think, are important and, and central to kind of being an active part of the political discourse and environment, but can also have the effect of taking us away from or pulling us away from perhaps kind of some of the core rationales we have um, or may have for getting into these discussions in the first place. And all is a way to say questions of what is the good life? What is, what is the life we are trying to live? How should we live? What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a good society? How do we achieve um, these aims? And of course, I think these are questions that, again, kind of lurk in the background of a lot of the discussions we're having about specific policies or specific debates about issues and so forth. But they tend to um, recede and fall deeper and deeper into the background um, particularly in the current environment where everything is in a constant state of churning and motion and so forth, that we can often lose touch with the core motivating sentiments that are pushing us into these debates in the first place. And, and I think that can happen no matter where one finds themselves um, upon the political spectrum or, or um, the attitudes they have about specific issues and specific topics that are driving the discussion of the day. And so with us today, we have, I think, one of the most interesting and thoughtful people uh, to help us navigate some of these matters, and that is uh, the one and only Dr. Gene Healy, who brings, I think, a much different perspective in the fact that um, he's certainly a student of politics and has studied uh, philosophy and, and, and read widely on such matters. But in terms of his practice and his actual work um, and some of his own intellectual background, I think it's going to allow us to come at some of these issues from a little bit different of an angle. And I think what you're going to see as the discussion develops and unfolds is trying to think about perhaps the ways that some of the traditions in terms of philosophy and thinking that I bring to the table and, and the background I have is not necessarily speaking a different, you know, it's not speaking a wholly different language than some of the perspectives Gene brings to the table. And, and I think in some ways it, it 
the conversation unfolds in a way where these two ways of understanding this question of the good life or how we should behave or what is human nature or what is the correct way to organize ourselves politically and so forth meet in some interesting and and important ways. Perhaps in some ways they just come down in different directions, but I think it leads to a very fruitful and engaging dialogue. So before we jump into it, I just want to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Gene Healy. Gene is currently working as an acupuncture physician and a doctor of oriental medicine. He is the owner of Root Healing Wellness in Dunedin, Florida. Uh, He has treated over 50,000 patients over the course of his career. After graduating from university, he traveled and studied extensively in Asia. He has worked with and learned from accomplished teachers of oriental medicine in South Korea. He has also taught oriental medicine at universities in South Korea in both English and Korean and practiced in over eight countries around the world, including the U.S., South Korea, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, and the Philippines. Dr. Healy also has an extensive academic background in religion and theology, as well as the practice of yoga and meditation. He was first initiated into the practice of yoga in temples in South Korea and has gone on to teach yoga and meditation extensively throughout South Korea, India, Cambodia, and the United States. So as you can see, Dr. Healy just brings, a, a I think, a host of not only academic but real-world experience working with people who are both physically struggling and also perhaps struggling mentally and emotionally. And I think to the extent that we look at politics as a potential force for good and healing in the world, though they may seem very distinct domains in our times, certainly in ancient times, the connections between philosophy and political philosophy and medical practice were much more integrated um, for a whole host of reasons. And perhaps in our very own small way here in the caves of Altamira, we are rediscovering this tradition of trying to integrate wellness at the personal level and at the level of the spiritual and the physical with wellness in terms of ourselves as political actors and as a political community. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Gene Healy, welcome to the Caves of Altamira. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you. I miss you, buddy. Yeah, it's great to catch up. Uh, and I've really been excited about recording this episode. You know, we've been trying to get to put this together for a little bit of time now, so I'm uh, happy to have you on. And I think this is going to add a, a little bit of depth to some of the things we've been discussing, or maybe not depth isn't the right way to put it, but to come at things from a little bit different angle of approach and uh, in, in trying to understand some of the problems and issues uh, that we are having both as a society and personally and interpersonally over the last years, decades. I don't know. I don't know how far you want to go back. Okay. So let me just put something out there and, and you know, kind of respond to it as you'd like. One thing that I think, you know, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on and especially a lot of the work you do and, and things you're involved with and some of your experiences uh, is that, you know, this show is about politics. So maybe maybe people are saying, well, why are you having someone who does acupuncture and oriental medicine or Korean medicine on here and who does meditation and, and things like this is, you know, steeped in Buddhist teaching and so forth? 
Uh, and to me, you know, in my mind, it's one of the you know most perfect kind of people to have on here in, in a podcast about politics. Because for me, one of the more interesting things is that in kind of the, if we go back to the ancient tradition, thinking about the, in the Western canon, people like Plato, Aristotle, what have you, um, for them, politics was always a means to an end. And that end was the good life, the just world. And and they ultimately saw this like, deep interconnection between these kinds of difficult and, and perplexing questions of what is the good life? Is there a common good life? Um, is there a common understanding of justice that we can arrive at? But for me, what's always interesting is that politics was always geared around that. And and in some ways, I and this is kind of where I want to turn to and, and hear your thoughts. I mean, in some ways, I think obviously we still do that. Uh, you know, we're speaking on April 30th here in Japan. I guess it's the 29th there. Joe Biden just gave a big speech. And Obviously, he in some ways is outlining policies that he thinks leads to the good life and and so forth. So we still have this notion kind of underlying. But I think one of the big problems, like a kind of large overhanging problem, is that ultimately, whether left or right or or how you want to look at it, and I, you know we all have different views on that. What we do have some kind of consensus around this notion of the good life that pervades our politics and how we talk about politics. And it's a a notion that to me and in my observations is leaving people extremely empty and unsatisfied. Like, so it's not that we've jettisoned a notion of the good life, but we've, we've kind of settled upon an understanding of the good life, perhaps going back to the age of modernity or an industrial modernity that has left people um, at least in my experience in the United States and perhaps the, the broader quote unquote Western world, um, but I could see it in Korea and Japan, so we don't need to just say the Western world, um, leaving people often feeling empty and unsatisfied. Well, what, what do you think is going on there, Gene? Well, that is probably the one of the fundamental questions of life, right? So where is the, the disconnect between the human desire for the good life and how it manifests in larger political bodies and how it actually governs people? So that's a very, I think, um, complicated question to really answer. Um, I would say that some of it, to be simple about it really just exists in how power is distributed and how power is used. And there's some fundamental, because I'm going to speak mostly about a Buddhist background because that's what I know best. And that's my particular angle talking about politics with you tonight. But if you look at the, the fundamental ideals that a particular belief system or religion strives for, that does kind of set a tone. So if you were to talk about Buddhist ideals, there's, of course, the personal ideal of um, enlightenment, uh, the culmination of a life in which karma is relaxed and uh, a human being has uh, a ripening, we'll say, and they reach their potential. So through that practice, how can one start to develop and integrate that with life? The complication, uh, as Buddhists see it, is it's basically two main things. And they're, I think they're pretty easy to understand, and I think that we could even probably come to some agreements right now talking about them. So I would say that, uh, Kevin, I'll just ask you, do you think that basically human beings, uh, they have cravings? Would we agree with that? Certainly. Yeah, human beings crave, right? Mm. So Buddhists wouldn't say that cravings are bad. Cravings are part of the natural process of being alive. But we would say that attachment to craving is some of the root of suffering. So, for example, if you have a bowl of ice cream, you can like the ice cream. Liking ice cream is not the problem. 
But if someone yanks a bowl of ice cream away and you get really mad and you fight with that person, the attachment to wanting that ice cream created some kind of discord and actual physical altercation. So could we agree that this attachment to things could create suffering? Is that easily understood? Certainly, I would agree with that. Yeah, that's easy to understand. Then we would say that also there's a fundamental ignorance to being a human being, to being actually alive and unawakened. So this fundamental ignorance is the fact that we feel as if we're somehow separated from everything else. We feel this isolation. But would we say that, for example, you and I, we have a relationship. Uh, We've influenced each other in our lives. So a part of my being has been able to influence you and create small change. And you've done the same for me. Actually, you've done the same for me in a large way. Honestly, you've been there for me in personal ways throughout my life. And the fundamental reality is that we're just all interconnected, but we don't experience life as interconnected. Would you agree with that too? Uh, I think, yeah, I think we have uh, kind of an oscillating experience of life of, you know, at least I can only speak personally. Um, that's interesting. I, I really can't honestly say how other people experience this, but I, I would say for me, um, it's an oscillation between moments of feeling deep interconnectedness and kind of part of this broader social web and at times moments of great feeling of great isolation. I mean, obviously during the current conditions, it hasn't been as much of a lockdown situation here in Akita, but I think a lot of people have um, felt not even just kind of emotionally isolated, but quite physically isolated. And and outside of the pandemic, I've, there's been moments in my life where I have felt really isolated. So I, I guess it's kind of from my, my personal experience, a bit of an oscillation. Yeah, I would agree that everybody has times in which they feel more a part of things and times in which they don't. I would say that it's the the, the times in which you don't feel a part of a connection with people, society, life. Those are the times in which we suffer. When you are feeling a part of things, we often feel a sense of purpose and unity. So we have this fundamental ignorance, this fundamental uh, separation experience coupled with this attachment to craving. These are mechanisms. These are drivers. So from a Buddhist foundational standpoint, as they see that these are the mechanisms for human suffering, there's a a belief system that uh, is built around it. So if you have a belief system built around that, every belief system has a foundational understanding of reality. So if this is a foundational understanding of reality, then what happens? What's the extrapolation as it starts to become um, more organized, as it starts to become more codified, as it starts to become more solidly placed into a political structure? So there's some very interesting nuances and, and things that have happened historically when you look at that. So um, oftentimes, I think when, uh, I guess we'll just say the West for lack of, for just simplicity's sake, as they first encountered Asian religions and they encountered things like Buddhism, they assumed that there was this passive nature and uh, the Buddhist uh, inclination towards things like reincarnation and renunciation that kind of originally stems from Hindu culture, Hindu philosophy, or Indian culture, Indian philosophy, there was this assumption that there was this passiveness, this lack of organization and social movement. So to some degree, we can say that there are some trends in that. I could speak about personal experiences where I've met teachers and I've met people in um, temples, and as you try to strike up a relationship or have contact, if we can't uh, meet each other's expectations, they would literally just tell me, next life meaning that in this life, we just don't have karma. They'll brush it off very easily because they have this very long view of time. 
long view of history. So there is some of that that's true. But at the same time, as we're as Buddhists are striving for their own enlightenment, there is an understanding that human beings and all life is connected. And it's a shared experience. And especially in Mahayana Buddhism, there's an ideal presented in the Bodhisattva where one is actually a compassionate being that is actually engaged with life, but that is more emphasized. So that being said, in history and also in uh, uh, the Buddhist background, there are there's this particular idea, it's called the Chakravartin. So as we have this reincarnation idea, so reincarnation, just to even, we're going to get back to politics. I'm just laying a bit of a groundwork no, right now. No, sounds great, yeah. So this idea of reincarnation, whatever people's, um, I guess, presuppositions about it are, uh, what I can say about it is let's think of it in a simple way. It's just cause and effect. So, for example, uh, you've noticed, and I think that everybody, all your listeners can probably attest to this in one moment when they're feeling angry, something happens, if someone hits you, right, that's a cause, and then all of a sudden the effect is anger arises. And then as this anger arises, you can act on it, and that's going to create a different uh, effect. And there's going to be some kind of causal sequence. Something will happen, right? So in any particular moment, you can be angry, and then you could have somebody say that they did it on accident, and they could apologize, and all of a sudden you could have some compassion. And then after that, uh, you could have other emotions depending upon what's going on around you. So any particular moment can be, to some extent, understood as a separate existence. You have something that's happening, and then it changes from moment to moment. So reincarnation is a process of understanding the causal nature of cause and effect, coupled with how it interconnects into phenomena, how things actually just present themselves. So whether we talk about the physical body, this is where people start to get a little confused because if we just talk about cause and effect in one lifetime, that's easy to understand. There is this psychological, emotional, mental birth and death that happens moment to moment. We can kind of agree on that. But when we talk about a body and a new body that comes around and we have to explain consciousness, then it can become a little bit more, I would have to say, difficult to understand or maybe a subject to interpretation. But in the background, there is this idea of how does one react to life? Okay, so the basic laws, how is one supposed to treat other people? There are the basic ideas, of course, you know, like the the do unto others idea in Christianity and the idea of karma, where you do reap what you sow. Um, but as it organizes in larger human political structures, there's this idea of something called the Chakravartin. So a Chakravartin was supposed to be kind of a righteous king. So back then, when Buddhism was around, uh, just like for uh, much of history in the West, it was based on some kind of monarchy where power was passed down in a particular way, whether it's by birth or designed by God in certain circumstances or belief systems, etc. So a Chakravartin was supposed to be a righteous king, a king that actually ruled according to Buddhist principles. And Buddhist principles uh, do honor life. Uh, they honor the process of life, and, uh, and they have an understanding that life is full of suffering that is created by ignorance and attachment to craving. So the biggest um, example of that would be King Ashoka, arguably one of the more famous and influential kings in Indian history. 
And his particular story is kind of interesting because he was a warrior and he conquered and had conquest like many kings did. And then after a particular battle, it was particularly bloody and there were thousands and thousands of people dead. He had this great welling of remorse. It's as if, I mean, maybe uh, you, you can tell me if, if you've ever experienced it, but you see it in movies quite a bit. There's this pandemonium and mayhem and people are killing each other. And then in the movie, there's the slow motion where the protagonist looks around and he actually notices all the suffering and the death around him. And he sees the futility of whatever cause you might believe in to actually have to fight and create this kind of real suffering that you can be, that you can witness. It's almost like an awakening to the reality of what you're doing. So can you uh, possibly relate to seeing a movie where you have that kind of slow-mo motion uh, moment? That makes sense? Yeah, and I mean, even in a little bit more of a direct kind of experiential sense, I've uh, had friends um, who have, you know, been uh, in in war zones and uh, talked about this experience themselves, that in the midst of war, just stepping back and being like, good Lord, this is just awfulness all around. Like all all sense of, of the good side and the bad side falls away. So I've, I've actually had, you know, people relay those experiences who have, who have actually been in, in such, you know, similar circumstances. Yeah, so I think that we can relate to that. Even if we haven't physically had that experience, we can relate to it. We've seen it in images. So King Ashoka had this strong sense of remorse, and there was also a, a monk that he saw, a renunciant, a Buddhist monk, and he started talking to him. And then there was a conversion process where he wanted to live by Buddhist principles and create peace and prosperity for his land. And he ruled over a large portion of India, and there was tremendous peace and prosperity. And he's one of the kings that a lot of Indians will uh, remark on as being a tremendous king, very important in the history of India. So the interesting there is, thing there is he tried to live by Buddhist principles. So if we look at war and fighting over time, of course, uh, every country fights, Buddhist countries fight too. They're not um, divergent from, from violence. But you will, say, you will see that generally there's less. If you were to just count bodies, <laughs> there's just less wars waged in the name of Buddhism. And I would argue that the reason is, is the, the foundational belief system doesn't really emphasize violence. It explicitly talks about the cause and effect nature of what violence will bring upon the rest of humanity. So it's not like the, there isn't violence, and there's good examples of violence in Buddhist cultures. When you see, for example, uh, more recently, things like uh, Sri Lanka, where you see violence between like the, the Tamils and the, the native Sri Lankans, and we could say that there is uh, a Buddhist fighting against a minority uh, process, which is true, but it's not just religious differences there. There's also ethnic differences. So it's a little bit more complicated than just people having different belief systems. There's also an ethnic difference, an economic difference, who was there in that land first difference, all of these other things going on. So they do exist. There is definitely violence that happens. But historically, I don't know if anybody's ever done one of these papers where they literally just counted them. <laughs> they counted how many people died in which particular religion. But Buddhism generally has killed less as among the major religions go, I would probably argue. Uh, I don't know if I can really back that statement up. So 
Yeah, I was thinking about power, though. So the the real question is, is where is the check and balance of power? So ultimately, if you have some kind of foundational understanding that the way that we organize and govern each other does have to have some consequences, uh, then we can't make this rationalization that whatever action that we're doing, that the, the end justifies the means. Okay. Oftentimes that kind of rationalization is taken uh, for it to do very difficult things, some of which might include violence, right? But if you have a long view of history, a very long view where human suffering is constantly being reborn and recreated through the foundational ignorance of connection and also the attachment to craving, then whatever violence you do now in the name of whatever good, it really doesn't hold that much water. So it's too porous of an idea to really think that you can base it when you have a Buddhist kind of underpinning. But it does happen. People get mad. There's all kinds of reasons why people fight. And those are oftentimes, of course, power grabs too. So just to kind of bring that point around, I do think that historically there's been less violence. But of course, there is still violence in regards to how that is. Right. Well, I want to I pick up on that um notion of violence, because I think that's, that's really an important um, framing for this, because I think on one level, what, you know, what you're talking about in terms of how violence instantiates itself um, in war and conflict and, and death and these kind of horrific scenes that um, sadly still play out um, around the world today, and perhaps they've been reduced somewhat, but you know, in some ways, one, one rather kind of grim way to think about human history has been the uh, successive um, advancement of the ability to kill people en masse, right? I mean, nuclear weapons being like the ultimate end of that. So there's that kind of side of it. But one, the thing that interests me or I'm curious about, though, is all of that said, most people, most places in the world on, on any given day are not experiencing a kind of visceral violence um, in terms of physical confrontation. Now, now millions are. Um, and, and I'm not, this isn't to minimize that, but at the same time, even in countries that experience um, a lot of strife or conflict, uh, the, the vast majority of people are not experiencing violence on, on, on that level. But there's another way to think about violence, right? And so that's kind of where I kind of want to make the turn here is that if we think about, uh, to use um, the U.S. as an example, but I think, again, we can look at many societies that are at least financially quite wealthy and prosperous technologically and, and so forth, that on some level there has been, you know, th this goes back to kind of the tradition of, of enlightenment, quote unquote, enlightenment thinking is it's about, in a sense, you know, a lot of that was rooted in this notion of redirecting human passions, right? That um, taking people's greed and avarice and, and these, these, these kind of what, what were often identified as kind of the drivers of human behavior. And these are thinkers like Hobbes and Hume and Machiavelli all kind of said that we're just, we have all of these passions, vanity, fear, um, envy. And a lot of enlightenment thought was like, we can make society less physically violent by taking these passions and redirecting them towards commerce, right? Towards, towards money-making, towards, towards work, towards financial gain, profit, right? And and so that is the basis of, of trying to make what at the time was seen as a, a more peaceful and, and prosperous society, right? And so all is, all is a kind of roundabout way of saying is like, here we find ourselves now where 
increasingly in terms of technological advancement, medical kind of sciences in, in, in many ways and um, ways to transport ourselves, airplanes, what have you, um, uh, the ability for me to be in Japan chatting with you in Florida and recording it. I mean, there are all things that we, that have been done and people to have um, longer lifespans on average and so forth, right? That it has borne out a certain f- fruit, right? Um, uh, you know, that is, I think, um, would be, you know, hard to deny just in terms of the, the information we have. But, and this is always, you know, but as I mentioned, it still seems to be coupled with even those who attain kind of what we would consider to be the peak of this um, are very often left feeling empty, right? And and I said that what's been striking to me, like I've lived in three countries, um, you know, and you've been around the world quite a bit yourself, but, you know, Korea, Japan, United States, um, all very wealthy, prosperous societies. And of course, this plays out differently in each kind of social and cultural context. But ultimately, this kind of emptiness, this bareness, right? And and that can manifest itself in, in a lot of ways in Korea and Japan because they have a much longer historical tradition um, that often is looking like back to the past. Um, but even in the United States, we see that. I mean, you know, look no further than uh, Donald Trump, make America great again, right? This This like you know, seeking some glory in the past or, or reviving some some lost moment. And, and I think, again, it's very different in different places, but I think why that is appealing um, is not because it's true. It, you know, often every society is built upon its own set of myths. I mean, there was no glorious past. I mean, the Joseon dynasty, most people were um, peasant farmers. Many of them were enslaved and, and abused, right? So it, it, of course that's a myth, but why that myth is attractive is because we are encountering um, such an emptiness. And I, to me, that's an interesting question because why does such abundance for many people, right? And this is not, I'm, I, I could imagine people saying, well, look, look, a lot of people aren't like satiated and, and live abundant lives, but for those that even do, and that's what's, what's, what's most fascinating, for those who even do achieve that kind of satiation, um, plenty of food, electricity, warmth, clothes, status, what have you, there's ultimately this emptiness and also a lack of mechanisms for transcending that emptiness, right? That it's not just that people achieve these things and then feel empty or, or kind of barren personally, emotionally, um, and so forth but that there seems to be a lack of, you know, the mechanisms that we look to that were very much like kind of even the mechanism of a spiritual turn or a turn to sustenance, um, at least in the United States, has also itself become very commercialized, right? So it's like, we, you know, the, 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 even the tools that we are available for many, not all, I mean, there are some, you know, yeah, I think you're doing real work, obviously, Gene, but there, it, it, that also has become a commodified product, right? And so... Um, I don't know how we break out of that cycle. Um, and, and to me, that's what's always been um, a, a bit curious to see this kind of continuing. And and I, I don't think this is like some sort of brilliant and, and unique insight. I mean, this obviously some people have been commentating on it for decades or not, if not centuries. But it's a question that I think we still need to keep coming back to. And it's, it, it does tie back to politics because, again, how we're defining the good life, I think, is very limiting um, in terms of 
it, you know, it's satisfying something, but not satisfying other things. And, and I'll use a, a metaphor. I'm not using this in an explicitly kind of religious or spiritual context, but it, it seems that we are, you know, a lot of the good life is focused on satisfying the body. Um, but there seems in our society very little, few mechanisms for genuinely satisfying the soul. And then obviously organized religion in many places isn't doing that either because a lot of the people in those churches are the most unsatisfied, right? So, um, all right, so that's a lot, but that's kind of, you know, I, I think what I'm really curious about. And I think this is really tied to not only your background as, as a, um, you know, as, as a scholar and, and as, a, as a, you know, someone who's trained as a doctor um, and so forth, but also in the actual work you do, because I think you do work with a lot of people who are not only encountering encountering the, the physical problems that require acupuncture or other um, herbal treatments and so forth, but also a kind of, you know, a lack, that lack. And so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on that, both in the kind of broader sense, um, but also in, in a very kind of personal way. Okay, so I want to touch on three points. One, I want to mention the, a specific part of the life of the Buddha as an example, and then talk about the drivers that we talked about once again, this ignorance and this attachment to craving, and then uh, how that manifests. No matter what kind of industry we pour our craving into, it's still craving, even though it does have a lot of energy behind it. So um, if we look at one story from the Buddha, uh, he was born a prince. He had a, a lovely life. He was basically given everything and didn't see any suffering. And then uh, one day he goes out and he sees actual suffering. His attendant takes him outside the gates and he sees suffering. He sees what's called old age sickness and death. And these are actually new to him. He didn't know they existed. The man's in his 30s. And then after going back to the uh, palace and being full of consternation and confusion and suffering because he didn't realize these things existed, he had this, this um, inability to reconcile it. And then he had, of course, pleasure, women and wife, and he had a child. And, and it's kind of like this moment that we were talking about in war where people step back and they see, they have this real clear vision of what's going on and all the suffering that it's, that it's actually um, causing. It was a big orgy of pleasure where there's women and all this stuff going on. And then he just kind of stepped back and looked at it. And he's like, this does not lead anywhere. This is just basically craving, sensual desire, hedonism that doesn't actually fulfill us. And uh, he had a child and his child, his name is actually Rahula, which translates as little fetters. So he had to leave his family and his also his child to go out and to seek some liberation from this process. So the basic drivers are an ignorance to reality, okay? The interconnected nature of reality, the fact that we are not separate. We couldn't separate ourselves from life if we wanted to. No matter if you're in the wilds of Siberia, you have to eat something. There is life that's being uh, engaged. Also, there's this attachment to craving. So when we crave, uh, it's a driver. It pushes forward. I would argue that craving is a necessary evolutionary drive that causes us to evaluate our environment, try to have us conquer our environment, and actually the sense of separation, which manifests as like a hyper-fear response, is just, these are all just ways to keep us safe. But it's like inflammation. Inflammation, when you twist your ankle, has a purpose. It's trying to, if you have some minor bacterial infection, temperature rises, it's trying to kill it. It's providing a safety mechanism 
but inflammation gone awry can actually kill you. So uh, just like this craving gone awry, this attachment to craving gone awry, it can create tremendous suffering. So when we're able to take this craving and harness it, you can have tremendous amount of industry. You can channel it into, you know, into making economics work for society. You know, like the Chinese, they really want to channel this make money process and this dissatisfaction with life into the practical reality of making money. But the Chinese are going to experience the dissatisfaction of the spirit just like every other human being does when you have what's considered to be enough. So no matter how much you pour something into a hole that's bottomless, it just cannot be filled up. The action of actually trying to fill the hole, it just makes the hole bigger. So the process is kind of paradoxical. The only way to actually fill the hole is to stop trying to fill the hole, to actually recognize the inherent sufferings that we've never actually paid attention to, that we've ran away from our whole lives because we've tried to protect ourselves from pain. And then as we experience that suffering again, we just let the energy, the attachment to it pass, and the hole in our hearts, in our spirits, in our souls, it heals on its own. There's an interesting grace here, and I like to use a Christian word grace because it's not as emphasized in Buddhist language, but the grace is that there's a mechanistic process of healing. When you stop playing with fire, Buddhists would say when you stop putting logs in the fire, the fire just burns out on its own. So the craving, this attachment to craving, better to be a little bit more precise because, you know, even the Buddha wanted to eat, wanted to sleep, wanted to do these things. And let's quickly identify and be clear about what a Buddha is. A Buddha is not some supernatural being, just an awakened individual, which means completely awake to the nature of reality, the nature of self. Also, they no longer have this attachment to craving. Their karma, which is a habitual reaction to life and phenomena, this grasping mechanism of attachment has been snuffed out. So life just unfolds and exists as it is and can be appreciated. The flip side is, is people think, well, if I get enlightenment, does that mean I'm going to just sit around and be blissed out and actually not want to make money or, or build things in life? None of that is true. It's not as if you don't have your full faculties. In fact, you have your full faculties with clarity, where you can be as industrious as you want, where you can have as much love as you want to share or experience. You're just experiencing life as it is without all this extra layers of what you demand from life. So you can be equally industrious, and I would argue possibly even more creative because your creativity isn't limited. It's not limited by just by what you want. So it's maybe, I guess, antithetical. You have to just stop running, running towards an idea or running away from something that causes you displeasure. The two basic things that the mind does most of the time is it runs towards something it wants more of. It runs away from things it wants less of. And it's constantly bouncing back from those two, and it creates a tremendous amount of nervousness and agitation. If you harness that, of course, it's like a, a horse that you have all this, this nervous energy. You can put it in a direction, and you can be a wonderful merchant. You can be a scholar. You can be a UFC fighter, whatever. You can channel all of this emptiness into something. But ultimately, at the end of the day, people get to that moment. They get to some point in life in which reality slows down. There's a hyper experience of the suffering that is being 
that's around you and at the same time that's in you. And you know that all your ideals, whatever that you're reaching for, that next car, that next paycheck, that next girl, that next family, that next whatever, we can agree on whatever we consider to be good and just in the good life, like love or family, all those things. You can never put your finger on a thing that's satisfying. And the reality is, it's because it's quite simple. It's because we haven't rectified our understanding with one very basic principle of life, and that's a principle of impermanence. Things just don't last, and we can't handle it. (laughs) But impermanence being the problem, it also has the cure inside it, which means that our suffering also doesn't last. If we could take a second to just let the suffering be there and this attachment to craving, this yearning that exists in every human being that I would consider to be part of uh, every human being, this would be foundationally true. This suffering, this emptiness actually starts to pass because it too is impermanent. One thing that also came up to me while you were talking was uh, one of my all-time favorite uh, movie quotations uh, from Enter the Dragon. Um, and one scene in there, um, Bruce Lee says, uh, you know, they asked him, well, you know, there, it was it was like based around this tournament where all these fighters were coming. And one of these fighters asked, he said, well, what's your style? And he, and he said, you could say I practice the art of fighting without fighting. And I just think that's yeah. just, I, I lo- <laughs> it's always stuck with me. And, and there's a scene, you know, uh, th- there's this like, you know, cocksure American guy and he's like yeah whatever that's so dumb and you know and then Bruce Lee gets them all riled up and he's like okay let's go at it and and he says okay but I don't want to fight here on this boat let's go on in that little boat and then the, the guy's like okay let's go out on this small like you know raft and let's go fight and so the guy gets on the boat and he's like yeah he's like okay get on the boat climb down and then Bruce Lee pushes the boat out to the water and he's like I just won <laughs> it was amazing. It's like one of my, I, I think it's Enter the Dragon. It could be another Bruce Lee movie, but it was great. And he just shoved the boat out in the water and then he's like, yeah, you're out there and I could cut the rope and you're dead. And I didn't do anything. <laughs> you just defeated yourself. So I don't know. It just, that popped in my mind when thinking about like the, the kind of, you know, that's by stopping, you know, is not, is not doing, doing nothing is not doing nothing. And that, and I think that also has a lot of um, roots in in Taoism. Taoism has that kind of similar idea that doing nothing is not doing nothing, and that sounds weird, but I mean, it, it, it yeah, it, it, I, I think that 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 kind of also came to mind. But on on that note, when you're talking about um, you know human cravings and and this kind of you know this, almost like you, you describe like a ping pong, like we're bouncing back between moving towards things we desire, um, trying to resist things we fear or or feel that will cause us pain and i mean this sounds what's interesting too is is um though i am sure maybe some of them were familiar with buddhism uh quite a few um you know david hume is arguably people say was um quite read read a lot about buddhism during his studies in france um that's that's kind of debated as how much that influenced his thought but you do see this in the kind of western tradition particularly um utilitarianism right that all human life is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, right? That's a kind of core philosophical view. And and, and, it, and it builds upon, I think, um, it grows out of this tradition within Western thought and Western political thought in particular that often finds that you're on more solid grounding if you assume, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. We, we have, we, it, it at one level posits like good 
good features and bad features. And, and we think of like greed, avarice, self-regard, uh, and, and so forth, um, cunning, deception. Like these are classified as, as negative human attributes. But at the same time, a lot of this philosophical tradition, I mean, we can you know, probably certainly see Machiavelli as a big touchstone, has found that if, you know, it's more rigorous and it's in your, you know, you'll understand things as they quote unquote really are, right? This is ought, right? And Machiavelli declares it like if you want to know how human beings, like if you want to understand human beings as political actors, you have to understand that they are greedy and they're selfish and they can't be trusted. And, and I think on some level, this idea that, that it, the being quote unquote more realistic. I still hear this from students all the time. Like, I don't know, I just want to be realistic, right? And, and somehow it's realistic to assume that human beings are kind of duplicitous and have are, are largely untrustworthy and, and so forth and will ultimately only serve themselves or maybe their, their close friends or family or so forth. And, you know, Hume, who I've, I've mentioned a few times, had a really interesting snarky quote where he's like, you know, uh, it seems that these people always just they always say that they claim that they can be that they're more rigorous or they're more kind of rooted in reality by just saying declaring human beings to be kind of these these um, rather unsavory figures as a as a category as a class and that's kind of a way to brandish your like bona fides as like a, a serious thinker right that's kind of i'm 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 not saying it with the elegance that hume did but that's kind of the way it's like you brandish your quote unquote seriousness by just saying yeah human beings suck right to to paraphrase and <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is that I do hear this in, in from students and from, you know, just friends and, and other people and, you know, in the media and, and how these things are framed and discussed. And what always doesn't, you know, I wonder if people realize is, is when they make such claims that they're, that they're making those claims about themselves. Then I, I'm, I guess I want to put some cards on the table here. And that's something that really I think has gone well awry is that if we say these things, then we, you know, about human beings being this way, we can't, you know, we're, we're in some ways impugning ourselves. We're, we're engaging in a kind of self-degradation, self-degradation, right? And then that, um, and not only the degradation of others, but ourselves. And that is, is a kind of violent act, going back to this term violent, that that's like a violence in terms of reducing and degrading others to these sort of unsavory. And it's not that these things don't exist, but... I think, again, this equation of serious thought, rigorous thought with emphasizing or, you know, in some ways almost exclusively focusing on these more pernicious aspects of human behavior has a, a negative effect on our psyche, both individually and collectively. And, and so one, I, I would be interested in your thoughts on that. And two, um, what is kind of the Buddhist theory of, of human nature, right? Because I think in the Western canon, and this is kind of my area of, of study and, you know, um, a lot of the things I study and write about and so forth um, are, are rooted in this. I don't write about Western philosophy or political philosophy, but they're outgrowths of this kind of mode of thought. So I've taken a lot of time to kind of dig into it. And it's, it's often rooted in that equation, like serious thinkers, assume human beings are quote unquote bad, which is, is a strange good and bad. I mean, you know, Nietzsche, that's a big topic for him that, that he find, he even critiques that very framing. But um, what is the kind of Buddhist, like what, how would a Buddhist come about like these questions of human nature? Because in, in, in Western political thought, they've kind of largely, like people don't really discuss human nature anymore. But 
a lot of our contemporary thought and political and economic organization is, you know, it, it's a foundation that it's built upon. So I'm, I'm interested in kind of how a Buddhist would come at those kinds of questions. Well, foundationally, Buddhists would say that when you no longer are assailed by the attachments to craving, when you've pierced the veil of ignorance and you realize that when you hurt another, you hurt yourself, uh, that the human being, when they're not so troubled by that, uh, that they're generally joyful. There's an experience of joy to be alive. And then from that experience, there's a natural compassion and relationship to circumstance if you see suffering in front of you. So you can think of it kind of like water with a bunch of mud. If it's all stirred up by thinking and passions, emotions, etc., the mud is all stirred up. So all you see is brown water. If you wait a little bit, then the mud settles, the dirt settles, and then the water becomes clear. And through the clear water, you can see what goes through it. So most people, when they act, their minds are very stirred. They're stirred by their emotions. They're stirred by their thinking. They're stirred by their biases. And the, uh, the notion of objectivity and ability to really kind of see and act clearly, I think that that's a little bit more of an interesting question to really talk about. So these people, when you have thinkers throughout history, when they're making assumptions about human nature, there is some objective uh, deduction when you see how a lot of people act and the suffering that it causes, you can make this kind of leap to say that human beings are like that. But also I would actually have to, if we had the ability, if we could really learn about these people and speak with these people, if they were still alive, I'd say, what's your motivation? You know, what is it that's really in your mind when you're making these judgments? And what you often don't get is what is that person bringing to the table as he's making a judgment? Oftentimes there's feelings of strong self-righteousness, right? This self-righteousness of being correct, of being right, of knowing better. And this self-righteousness, what is it? What does that stem from is an interesting question. Just, just to jump in really quick, and I think another interesting aspect of this is the, the there is this human tendency not, not to want to be the sucker, right? And I think in my weird take on, you know, one of the things that makes liberalism writ large, not like U.S. liberalism, um, but like you know, as it's used in the U.S., but like as a political theory that makes it so attractive is this idea of if you look at human beings, quote unquote, as they are, you won't be the sucker. You won't be naive. Right. And I think human, you know, people are really attracted to that notion. But go ahead. Yeah, that, that was also a part of it. But I, I like this idea. Like, what, yeah, what, what are they after? Well, even what you're saying, not being the sucker is a fear. So people are operating out of this fear and they're trying to protect themselves from an experience of pain. It still goes back to that. This self-justification, this self-righteousness is still some kind of protection mechanism because there's an experience of pain. So if somebody, imagine, let's take a second, because we've all experienced it where we've seen and we've thought that the world is basically a hard place when we've been in circumstances that have been unfavorable and we don't see justice and we see people really taking advantage of others because people really most of the time act in self-interest. When we see and experience that, we start to feel the hardness of the world and then we need to protect ourselves and we have to come to this blanket rationalization that, oh, the world must be hard. People are all self-interested. If we don't have this kind of blanket rationalization to protect ourselves, then how are we going to act to others? How do we have a feeling of trust? 
How do we move forward and have a relationship with people? So over time, because we've been hurt so much through our lives, uh, since we're little children, we are, we're born in a defenseless process to our parents. And then we have to, uh, we have all of the upbringing of what our parental influences are coupled with what our societal influences are coupled with all the disappointments of life and all the fire that we've touched and burned ourselves with that we're naturally going to become uh, defensive and feel fearful. But ultimately this is part of the grist for the mill, which is interesting. It's the solution is oftentimes in the problem, just like impermanence is the thing that we can't cope with, but because of impermanence, the grace of the dissolution of our suffering already exists because we have this, uh, uh, this protection mechanism. It eventually gets to the point where we're so isolated and so hardened by our thinking that the suffering becomes so great that the suffering becomes the fuel for us to look for a solution. So it's, it's almost as if this hero's journey that is, that is kind of encapsulates what it is to be a human being, it's designed for us to come into the world, go through trials and tribulations, and then the suffering of that propels us to our true selves. Okay? So that just seems that that theme has been repeated in cross-culturally in every tradition. Mm. that there's this possibility of some transcendence, okay? And without the suffering, you don't get the transcendence. So what is that transcendence? How do you get that? How do you organize around it and create a political structure around it? Those are complicated questions that I don't think that I can fully answer. I try to really point back to individual need to really work on this avoidance of suffering and to actually experience transcendence personally, experience what does awakening mean. When somebody knows and experiences that, then they know how to speak to others. They know how to be with others. They're really real with themselves. There's a sincere appreciation that when they open their mouths, what is their motivation? Am I trying to get one over on somebody? Am I trying to impress? What am I trying to do as I speak? There's an awareness there that most people don't have. How do you organize that into a larger collective body? It becomes a little more complicated because Buddhists traditionally they don't have a lot of fast and hard and fast rules. They have like the eightfold path, which doesn't tell you specific things. It says like right thinking, right livelihood. It doesn't tell you what right thinking or livelihood is. Maybe someone forgot the last and two, Gene. There's only eight. Like the, the last, last there's two. Only eight. There's you two didn't get that are ten. lost. <laughs> <laughs> we would be living in bliss right now if someone had erased the last two. The tablets are there somewhere. They're in the caves <laughs> like this, in India. Nobody's found them. I They're mean, there. Yeah, come on, eight? No, there's got to be ten, right? Maybe maybe that's my Judeo-Christian, right? I mean, like I think there's ten, and then someone lost two, and now look at us. Now now we're all miserable, and we're, uh, you know, we can't make the, it. Go ahead. The introspection required, though, because you don't have hard and fast rules, and if you look at how did the rules for the clergy and life actually get organized, you know, in the Buddhist canon— there's a lot of rules to what monks can do, what nuns can do, etc. And modern day clergy will look at those rules literally like the Ten Commandments sometimes. But they were literally the Buddha just sitting around. And then one day somebody came and said, hey, Buddha, I noticed so-and-so. He was handling some money in the market and it made him really greedy. And he ended up really becoming, uh, he did some bad action because of it. So the Buddha's like, all right, monks no longer touch money. Let's just take that influence away from us. So these rules are not set in stone. They're relative to situations, 
but sometimes clergy or sometimes people, they interpret it as very dogmatic. But the basic idea is, is this uh, impermanence uh, coupled with this foundational driving of attachment to craving and ignorance, uh, coupled with relative morality. So morality is not really good or bad. It's either skillful or not skillful, useful or not useful. Does it lead to a, a mean? Does it lead to a result that can actually help someone? Um, you know, we'll say evolve or see themselves or, you know, whatever other phrase we can use to talk about how human beings move through this life. So I think that uh, if we can take it personally, the thing about scholars is we have to try to be so objective and you have to talk in such a way that uh, you have to almost lie about the fact that you have biases. It's clear. We all have biases. And if we talk about it from a personal standpoint of, okay, what is actually driving me to say this? Am I trying to defend my position? What is going on here? If that kind of awareness can be brought to it, then we can really understand that we can't divorce ourselves from our conditioning. And the only way to experience freedom is to work on those core mechanisms. Right, awakening is awakening to the reality of interconnectedness. And experiencing craving and to let go of that craving is working with the reality of, you know, I want more pizza, but if I eat more pizza, I'm going to get diabetes. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and when you're talking about kind of what, what's driving this and kind of what kind of explicit or implicit um, biases or kind of frameworks are informing us, I always go back to the amazing result where almost all philosophers, um, particularly political philosophers who have tried to design and think about the ideal political system going back to Plato and the Republic, lo and behold, uh, discover that the philosopher should be the ruler, right? <laughs> you know, um, philosopher so, king, right? And and it's not just Plato. I mean, you know, for Nietzsche, who even in his own way, right, the the person, the philosophy was the way to become kind of this person who had a heightened kind of state of existence and and so forth, right? And so, well, I think some things that came up in uh, what you were talking about there in terms of how this filters into Buddhism and, and more specifically kind of how you look at these matters, it does get to this core issue and, and, and it is almost kind of, I don't know, metaphysical, ontological, what is the underlying nature of, of social reality? And, and in some ways to me, it's still bizarre. I mean, I'm teaching intro to political science again for the whatever umpteen time. And I always present this to students and I, I, it's great. I can present it as like, I still think this is mysterious and it's strange. Um, and I don't have a really good way to fully grasp it. So, and I think that's always fun, right. To expose that, like, these are, these are areas that are still not really, we don't really understand. And in, in one of the area I really comes to mind is, and it relates to what you were saying um, pretty directly, is that on the one hand, society and, and the world we live in, in a country or a town or whatever, I think we can all agree is ultimately nothing more than the summation and collection of all of our individual actions, right? That, I mean, and this has been a big part of what people call neoliberalism or libertarian philosophy, right? Is you know, um, Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is, you know, so there is no such thing as society, Right. And that has a lot of political and, and social connotations. But on some level, on some base level, there is something to that. Right. Human only individual human beings act. Right. There is no kind of structure that we can point to in acting in the way that a human being can. But 
And this is the big but. But there are clearly structural factors that shape us and form us, right? And so it's like this inside outside. Like on one hand, yes, like internally, individual human beings by whatever motivations, drives, ideas are the ones that are acting. But at the same time, there is this structure that is also the product, like some summation either historically or presently that like forms around us that shapes the parameters of our behavior and, and directs us in certain ways that are in some ways outside of our control, even even outside of our collective control. And, and I think that to me, again, it, it's this like, it, I, I don't want to, I'm not using it in a kind of new age spiritualism context, but I mean, to me, it's really mysterious and, and in a good way. I mean, to me, that's that's why I enjoy really digging into politics and in the political is because you end up in these mysterious areas where on the one hand I, I i absolutely agree that like you would imagine that the just and and fulfilled society be a one where people have at an individual level undergone these processes of transcendence of awakening of getting out of these channels that that filter us towards ultimately unsatisfying ends that you can imagine that that really is the pathway but at the same time our experience also tells us that there are these kinds of collective structural factors beyond even just political, like government and stuff, social norms, social values, cultural values, right? Uh, that's a question I always ask my students and, they, and it, it perplexes them like, oh, okay, we're in Japan or we're in Korea or we're in the United States and there's these cultural values that we, that we quote unquote, we have. And it's like, well, who decided those? Right? We can look at laws and like you say, like the Congress passed a law and now like if you do this, you go to jail, or if you do this, you get money. And like, at least we can tie it directly to some action. But when we say like, oh, and in so-and-so culture, it's it's correct to do this. And it's like, yes, we can see that. We can observe that. It's a, it's a reality. But where does it trace to? It's like a string that just like slowly disappears, right? Like you tug on it and just like nothing's on the other end. Um, but, but it, and, and that's what's mysterious to me. It's at one time real, like it affects us, it shapes us. It, it influences how we behave. But on another level, as opposed to like a law or like a government action or something like that can be like tied directly to certain specific behaviors and actions, it, it's not connected to anything um, that, that, that is like as tangible. And, and, and I think it's, you know, that's what's interesting is, and that gets into what we were talking about in terms of what is human nature and how do we understand that. And I, I'm influenced a lot by thinking of a guy named Carl Polanyi and you know, that was one of his things he talked about, kind of the market society and this market system. He, he saw it as this ultimate like kind of tautology, right? That we create a system that incentivizes certain behaviors and then people behave in that way. And then we say that's human nature, right? And I think that's, we can look at it in the Western context or, or in terms of, you know, Western political thought as, as built around the market. But I think we can see that in many different historical, social and political contexts is this kind of circularity, we define the good and then say people who are good pursue X and then they pursue X because those are the parameters set before them. And then everyone pursues those parameters because they people want to achieve status or fame or money or, or security or what have you. And then we say, look, that's just human nature. And I think Polanyi really, really was onto something. But so I, I get that circularity, but I'm always curious about like I'm always interested about like these external forces that do shape and direct us that are not clearly tethered to anything 
I don't know. So I don't know. What do you think? That's a, I mean, that's to me, it's a, it's still a mystery. I don't have a good answer. I think that everyone's going to agree that the circumstances a person is born into and raised in and lives in definitely is going to influence that individual. I don't think that that's really up for debate. That's true. Sure. Whether the cultural, political uh, organizations uh, have some kind of uh, eventual causal beginning, um, we could probably break things down. And if we were to be very um, clear and look at all the data, you could come to a lot of really good conclusions about how things started. Ultimately, we might not know all the cause and effect uh, strain of how it became what it is, but things arise for circumstances and they do influence us. And as we, when we were smaller societies, let's say there's only two people you have to have some rules, but then when you get to like 10 people, 100 people, then you got to have more rules, and then you eventually have to have laws where things are codified. So as we worked in, in our own self-interest, that it doesn't hurt the overall organism or the overall uh, organization, or, or it protects people, basic, basically. But as we're creating these larger bodies of organization, there's power, and there's power differentials, and power is abused because the fundamental... Uh, reason that uh, we suffer in the first place is an attachment to craving and an ignorance of the connectedness of things. So we don't realize that when we're abusing power that we're hurting ourselves. We just think that we're getting what we want. We just have this desire of what we want. And if there is a societal lever, a mechanism to abuse power to get what you want, then you do it. So I really like, for example, in Korean society, how they always hearken back to Confucian ideals of how like seniors are supposed to take care of younger people and things like that. But you lived in Korea and so did I. They have this ideal that they'll talk to and give lip service to. And it does um, sincerely influence a lot of people. But in actual practice, what we see is People get in positions of power. And when a push comes to shove, if they have to abuse their power to get what they want, they will. And because they're already in a situation of power, because they're in a higher position because of their age or because of they got into the company first or whatever, they will abuse it. And it's everywhere. And it's institutionalized because they have more power due to whatever seniority. So we see that Confucianism as an organizing structure didn't seem to work as well as we thought it would. It didn't really live up to its ideals, so to speak. But that's that's the, the more difficult process of having this this beautiful philosophical appreciation of how life should be coupled with how people actually act in their self-interest. So that's when I think it becomes really hard. And I don't think I'm smart enough or maybe given enough thought to think about how to organize larger bodies of people. But what I do understand about human nature is people act out of self-interest because they basically want more stuff that they want and they don't want stuff that they don't want. And they manipulate their reality to get those two ends met. But I want, I want to cut in right there because I think that is getting to the kind of core of the, of the issue because these terms self-interest and I, I agree that people do pursue what they want. But I think what's an open-ended question, and this is in some ways maybe the question or one of the questions is how much of that is predetermined or, or determined by biological or, or psychological factors and how much of that is malleable, right? And, and to what extent, right? We could say like obviously the desire to eat, 
I think everyone generally will agree that, of course, how much one should eat, what kind of food, obviously that's, you know, very, very open to debate. But like the desire to eat is fairly biologically wed into our being. But, in, in, you know, once you get out of those kinds of core aspects, like how malleable is like what we want? And, and this gets into like difficult questions because on one level, you want to respect people's autonomy and say that like people have a freedom and ability to decide what their goals and interests are. But on another level, we could maybe say that society is is constructed in a way to give people a f- bad set of incentives in terms of what they want versus what is ultimately good for them. You know, and this is, you know, again, I keep, I'm, I'm just drawing on my own traditions that I've studied. Like this is where Rousseau kind of stands out among a lot of Western thinkers. And he says, yeah, like, there are things like there's a, there's something that's better for people, even if they don't know it. Society should be geared towards pursuing what what is the what is so in someone's like ultimate interest, I guess capital I interest versus their the interest that they have, which may not be good for them. You know what I'm saying? So it gets like really, but I think that that's, that's a, also can be problematic because you don't want to, you know, you don't who is anyone to tell someone else like oh what you want isn't what's good for you. But at the same time, if you just say, well, everyone just does what they want, like you have no avenue for positing like a notion that like there's ultimately better interests or things that are more in someone's interest. I don't know. Maybe I'm, that's too jumbled. But what, what do you, you know, that's kind of what I think. So how to make the, the rules for how people act. If people can't just do what they want because ultimately wants will overlap and there'll be conflict. So there becomes some kind of social contract and agreement on what are the basic rules and we abide by them. Um, If, for example, we had a more, I guess, libertarian idea where people could do kind of whatever they wanted as long as it didn't really impinge on another, then we can make an argument that there's really no negative impact on other people outside of basically you're offending their sensibilities if you're not upsetting their person, upsetting their livelihood, materials, uh, people around them. So the question becomes like, is an action useful or not useful? Is it skillful or not skillful? And skillful or not skillful to what end is a good question. Does it move you towards freedom or does it move you more towards bondage? So let's talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to be free, right? So this idea of freedom doesn't mean that you don't have causes and conditions. doesn't mean that society doesn't influence you. You don't speak a specific language like specific food because you're brought up in that culture. It just means you have an ability to choose, to really choose. Most of the time when we talk about freedom, people don't really have much choice. Most people just live out of habit, and they live out of specific rules dictated to them by larger bodies like governments. They have and they operate with very little freedom. So we talk about, is it really, is there free will? Is it really determinism? Well, it's it's kind of psychologically, where are you on the spectrum? Most people live with very little freedom. They don't act freely. And then as you really understand this introspection, this process, like the, the Buddhist process of, of just analysis of what is the causal mechanism of our bondage, of this suffering, is to unravel that conundrum and to actually get real choice. So if you have, for example, like, ice cream in front of you, you know, I love ice cream. Who doesn't? Kids love ice cream. If you give a kid ice cream and you don't tell him not to eat it, he will eat that shit. There's no freedom there. He's going to eat it. 
He's that a was kid. I just finished that um, <laughs> excellent new um, uh, biography of Malcolm X, and uh, I mean, I, it's, it's a weird takeaway. I have a lot of takeaways from that book. It's fantastic. I, I think I mentioned it on the um, episodes before, but uh, um, Malcolm X loved ice cream. So you know, you might think of Malcolm X kind of a firebrand getting up there, and I, I'm I liked I loved I loved watching Malcolm X speak, and but you know, I still like that image, like he's sitting at the at the at the, uh, at the counter just like wolfing down some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know for some reason that like you know um yeah but I mean Malcolm X for for his public persona was a kind of you know had a, a softer side but just that anecdote I don't know it just stuck with me so yeah <laughs> it tickles me too this this freedom I think that if we're sincere when we really uh if we are sincere and we're honest with ourselves we can see that a lot of our actions are really just reactions we're not acting out of real freedom The first step, like if you were to talk about how I would teach something like meditation, the first step is just awareness of what is actually going on, okay? Most of the time, people don't have an awareness of their own motivations. They don't see the the scene and the environment around them. They're just acting on drives. First, you have this awareness. And then as you see that something is happening, that there is something going on that's going to drive you, you're going to start this habitual cause and effect response, then you can actually let go of that. You can return to the moment and let the craving of it just kind of settle down. And then when that settles down, you actually have more access to your innate wisdom, I would say, your innate creativity to respond to the situation in a wiser way. So without this kind of process of awareness, this ability to let go of this attachment, this ability to just be comfortable in your skin in the moment, you don't really actualize the full potential of who you are as a human being. If you're agitated, you're not going to have good recall for your memory. If you're agitated, if you're desirous, you're not going to have the ability to access all of this creative potential that exists in your brain and through all your experiences in life because you're going to be hyper-focused in certain things. So... I think that that is explained in a way that people can kind of relate to. Okay, I'm stirred up. I actually don't see the scene as well as I should. So when we talk about basic, uh, um, you know, like in Zen, they say people don't even know the taste of water. When you're drinking water, you know who knows the taste of water? Someone in the desert who hasn't had water. Then you give them water, and the only thing in their experience when they drink that water is water. It's the only thing that they're in that experience. But We drink water as we're watching TV and eating our food and using our phones. How much of all of that stimuli, that data out there, are we actually getting? Not that much. So many things are happening. We're so overly consumed with things. But yet, we're still human beings. We still have to organize into into bodies and larger political organizations. We still have to give power and make rules and laws. So we come to all of these agreements, but because it's all faulty, it does, none of it really uh, is built on the edifice of what human nature is. So if we were to talk about what is human nature, I would say when you don't have that influence of craving and attachment to craving, then most of the time people are just going to be alive. You might feel suffering. You can feel pain and all of those things. But if you don't do the next step of craving an out, then you still have a correct response to suffering. 
And then you also can see the field more clearly. You can address people better and things like that. So it's this, I guess, starting with uh, uh, yourself. So one of the fundamental things of Buddhism is this understanding that there is no separation. You can't say that uh, people talk about, uh, uh, is it more like Plato and idealism? Is Zen more like a monism? Which is the proper ism to describe it? Well, it's more epistemological. What is the nature of your reality? So you cannot divest your subjective experience of reality from reality. It colors every aspect of reality. To say that it doesn't, I would say, is ignorant. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid. It just means not knowing. And then when you stop attaching to all of these internal drives, you just see more of reality, just more data gets in. And this experience of awakening is an experience where the grasping mechanism that is always on low-grade go for us, always grasping, this hand that's constantly clenching at something, actually lets go for a second. And the refreshing experience of just being alive floods in. And that can fundamentally change a person because they see that everything that you're grasping for is ephemeral. It's impermanent. It ultimately leads to delusion because it won't satisfy you. And the act of grasping actually hurts. It hurts you psychically. It hurts you emotionally, spiritually. And it hurts other people because it separates you and others and it constantly creates self-interest. I think that's a really excellent way to put it. And and in some ways, I think, um, gets at a lot of questions I have. And, and that's why it's been so um, great to talk to you and get some of your insights on these matters. Because I think what you're presenting in perhaps we could look at Buddhism or, or even um, a framework that brings from, from a similar perspective. I, I don't, you know, that's something that's interesting. Buddhism doesn't demand that people be Buddhist, like, like perhaps like other religions, you know, you need to do X to get salvation and so forth. But and it, it, I think that's also part of it and in terms of very contemporary issues um, and, and particularly over the last several decades, the world around us has increasingly, and, and you know, this depends on one's position. So I, I, us, I'm using in, in perhaps an, an imprecise way, but the world for many people has seemed to provide a certain idea of understanding of, of a certain control um, increasingly. That, and that's obviously the story of, you know, the unfolding of, of human history is this um, increasing notions of, of dominion, not only over nature, but over certain technological things and apparatuses and so forth. And now we're getting into kind of AI and, and algorithms and all these things. And it's, it's, it's an idea of we get it, right? We, the, we, we know how things work. We know how the universe works and we know how technology works. And we have these theories and we test them and um, that allows us to manipulate matter and, and electrons and understand how like the, these kind of even subatomic particles operate and we're able to validate them through testing. And I think that's fantastic. So I'm not, I'm not critiquing that or, or it's not a critique because that's what I think we get in this tired debate of like, you know, religion versus science. It's just so tired and, and unhelpful and, and unuseful because I think you can say that, yes, science is fantastic. And I think it, it's great that we have these methods for testing medical treatment, for testing how, you know, we can look at the vaccine that just came out or how, you know, having 
theories and, and then subjecting them to testing to improve our knowledge, to improve our ability to make our lives better. You can say that's all great, but still have a sense, some, some, some notion that there's a lot about the nature of reality or underlying reality that isn't clear, that isn't known to us, and perhaps may never be known to us. But there's something more going on that perhaps we. I think a lot of people have that inkling, and maybe for some people, um, religion, you know, Christianity or Islam or what have you, is is a way to kind of satiate that craving. When maybe for others, they turn to more things like secular humanism and looking for morality and this kind of, you know, appreciation for the human species and, and what it can do and consciousness and all these kind of interesting attributes. Um, but I think all of our scientific developments and all of our discoveries in physics and, and telescopes and all these things can be wondrous and amazing, but they, they still are. And I like this idea that, you, you know, you, you, you can't fill up uh, the, the you can't fill up um, a cup with a hole in it, right? Or however you put it much more nicely than that. Uh, you know, that all of our scientific advancements, as amazing and as helpful as they tend to be, not always, but usually, can't like take away that, that fundamental kind of sense that like there just seems to be more to what is going on or, or to the nature of reality than one is able to fully grasp or appreciate. And I guess that's where I feel that like, I always see this like kind of um, interplay of certainty and awe. And I think the, and and that would be my critique of religion is not that it's like, you know, a bunch of garbage and, and, you know, foolish and people believing in old fairy tales. I think that's a kind of trite and boring critique. Um, Fine. If people want to do that, great. But I think, my critique of religion is that it actually takes away awe. I mean, I grew up Catholic and, you know, it gives you all these answers, like Jesus is the son of God, you do X, Y, and Z, you go to heaven, you live in paradise. Like it's in some ways removing awe. And 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 I think the hardened kind of secular path of, of, of thinking that science is going to give us all the answers is equally complicit in removing awe. So I, I think, you know, and I think it's connected to a lot of things you've, you've discussed today is that you know, somehow retaining that awe um, and and um, questioning the certainty that we have. And I'm not saying that science can't do that. I mean, that certainly for a lot of scientists, it is an exploration and, and a sense of awe and wonderment. And that's why I really like that metaphor um, that you used earlier with the mud and kind of settled mud and then you stir it up in the water and it kind of things get hazy. And, and I, f- I found that, you know, as you were saying that, I thought like that's the perfect metaphor for life in in the here and now with our with our constant um, notifications and updates and breaking news it's that if we look at the settled mud as a point where we have like clarity and are able to kind of sit back and and just have that feeling of awe that like we can think about our phones and and whatever else is going on as like a as a kind of constant stir right and we're just it, it never stops um and um, with, without that ability to stop and let the mud settle, um, we are kind of constantly um, looking downward, which is part of life, right? A friend once told me, you know, you know, wear your eyes on your feet, but keep them pointed at the moon, right? I mean, like the, we have to be involved in the world, but I think we we were like we've kind of lost that ability to just stop and be like, holy shit, like we're just floating out in this like, you know, maybe endless, we don't know, but vast expanse and it's just wild. But, you know, I, I think if you get into like the daily news updates and I do, and, you know, 
Facebook messages and yada yada. It can kind of take you away from that. So I don't know. Any any last thoughts on my on my babbling on here, Gene, uh, to to take us home? One of the foundational mistakes I think of human beings is to look exteriorly for um, satisfaction. Uh, that mechanism is great because it does keep us uh, striving and making and trying to understand and improve and manipulate our environment. That's not a bad end. But to ultimately think that satisfaction lies somewhere out there in something, that ultimately always has proved false. And I don't think that it'll ever prove true. I don't think that if we colonized a million planets and, you know, whatever development and evolutionary road we took, we're ever going to be satisfied if we constantly think the answers are out there. But I think if you can point the the lens inward and take a look inside at what's really going on in your own mind, something that you can experience. So science is basically experimentation with reproducible results and the rigorousness around that. You can do that with yourself. And sometimes that's uncomfortable for people and people don't want to do those things. And we maybe not trained or maybe want to make excuses to think that something outside is just a little bit juicier and more interesting. So we point the lens inward and then with that process, we need tools. So I think what would be useful is if uh, I give a little bit of background and just kind of teach people a very simple meditation, something that they can do. Because when we're actually lost in intellectual thought, it's very exciting and stimulating but it never really gets us happy. It just really churns us up and it gets us excited and it might want to help us create more projects, which is all great stuff, but it doesn't satisfy. So there is, I think, a foundational realization that people have to have is that whatever we grasp for, it just never satisfies. It's just illusory. It slips from our fingers like sand at the beach. So we don't need to argue like nature, nurture, faith, or our works. We have to be honest about what's actually going on in our minds. And this is scientific. The honesty of the scientific rigor to admit what's going on and to understand that the repetitiousness of what's going on is causing an effect. And that effect is for us to suffer. And then if we release that mechanism, then something interesting happens. Wow. Yeah. No. Um, well, challenge uh, duly taken, and um, uh, thank you so much, Gene. As it turns out, um, speaking of the seeking of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, after spending all morning talking to you, or not all morning, spending a good part of the morning talking to you and seeking pleasure in, a, in an excellent and, and very thoughtful and, and I thought very um, illuminating conversation, I have a paper that needs to be written and a due date coming. So that is pain that I have been avoiding. Um, why do I find that painful? This is a, something I need to question. I, I t theoretically, I've spent my life training to do such writing, but yet sitting down to do it, I find a little bit tedious and painful. Th that's something we'll have to crack in another episode. Gene Healy, thank you so much. I will include links to Gene's Facebook page for Root Healing Acupuncture. And um, Gene just does fantastic work there. And I know a lot of you probably aren't in Florida who are listening to this, but um, you still can be able to join through um, videos and, and other live broadcasts that Gene does. And I think, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, he's working on some books. So be sure to check those out. Um, just keep abreast of all things Gene Healy. He's just, I think, one of the most interesting and and really kind of dynamic thinkers out there. Someone who is has a foot in the world and, and is understands 
quote unquote how things are, but um, is not um, willing to settle or be defined um, by that alone. And um, I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. So, Gene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, uh, Kevin. It's been an honor. I love you, my friend, and I miss you dearly. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 